You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Most newcomers to San Francisco promptly tour our town's art museums and galleries, surfing beaches and green parks, fabled bistros, clubs, theaters, and pubs, or our splendid restaurants serving every conceivable fare. People can eat their way around the world just by dining for a month in the city. In my day, acquitting oneself as a gourmand was the mark of a bon vivant. You had to master drinking, too. Navigate the night by sipping fine wines at top of the mark, then Bruno's martinis at his Aub Zamzam bar in the hate. A bloody Mary or two amid a breezy ferry ride over to Sausalito for breakfast. Finally, Irish coffees at the Buena Vista Cafe just after you got back to town, before rushing off to work. Here's mud in your eye. None of that for Palmer. He checked in at that venerable Soma, south of Market Street, hotel, where our newspaper maintained a lofty penthouse for VIPs, as well as many studios in the basement for interns or other visitors of scant status, such as Palmer. But before unpacking all his bags, Palmer plugged in his laptop, found a climbing gym, consulted a Google map, then strapped on the inline skates he'd brought with him and scooted on over there. Paul McHugh has reported for the San Francisco Chronicle and other journals for more than 20 years. His focus has been outdoor sports, resource use, and environmental issues. His new novel is Deadlines. Thank you for speaking with me, Paul. My pleasure. Paul, this is a really fascinating novel because you take on the mystery genre, but you tweak it by making your investigators not detectives, but reporters. Yeah, I, I think that if you decide you're going to write in a genre and you meet the demands of the genre and you only meet the demands of the genre, you've just written a boring book. So what I wanted to do was uh, write a genre piece, but I wanted to uh, alter it and, and build in surprises that, that would uh, uh, give the readers a sense of, of giddy acceleration at certain points and also um, uh, take them into investigation as done by someone who doesn't have a gun, doesn't have a badge. All a reporter has is the ability, hopefully, and, and uh, the permission to ask questions. And what can you do with that when you're trying to solve a crime? Now, here, writing as a novelist, that's a, a very different style of writing as a reporter. So I, I'd like you to talk about you know, the different kinds of writing you do as a reporter and, and then take us to the novel. You know, for example, you might go out and take notes on on, a, on an interview and take notes about uh, the events you see. Then you might write up a scratch piece. Then you might write up a, an article or an editorial. Um, talk about that kind of writing process and how that informed this novel. Okay. You know, the... Um the kind of writing I did as a reporter, because I mainly did features, uh, I, I, I did try to put a little more narrative in my news writing than most folks do. Uh, a lot of news reporting can be really spartan. You know, you're just into, into the concepts, the facts, and the relevant quotes. 
I like to try to set a scene a little bit, give a sense of the characters involved, and tell my new story like a story. So that gave me a little bit of a leg up on writing fiction. Also, I think that some of the strengths of good writing goes all the way across all the genres, uh, poetry, screenplay, novels, news stories, what have you. Clarity, simplicity, the power of a simple declarative sentence, and so on. Now, the trick, the real trick, was um, moving from a, uh, a genre or a discipline, if you will, the news writing, where everything has to be as accurate as possible and, and, and reflect reality as much as possible. With fiction, you jump the fence. You know, in, in, in journalism, you're not supposed to make up quotes, and in fiction, that's the job description. So um, that made uh, writing fiction to me like uh, a playground. It was a place where I could go and romp. At the same time, since I'm, I'm telling a story, I'm setting it, a lot of it in a newsroom, and my, my reporters, my, my sluice are reporters, uh, I was able to use a lot of the, um, not only the slang, but the very language of newsrooms, the language that reporters talk in, and even the language of newspaper stories to tell my tale. But what made it fiction was I had perfect freedom to follow the scent wherever it led. While you had perfect freedom to follow the scent wherever it led, this book is is uh, clearly based on some of your experiences as a reporter. Um, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit. I, I was looking at, at uh, the article you wrote back in 1995 about a man who was uh, convicted of embezzlement, uh, $45,000, maybe $450,000. I, I the true amount will never be known. <laughs> I mean, uh, Gray Davis, who was controller of the state of California at the time, said in seven years as controller, he had never seen a set of books in worse shape than the books at Asilomar Conference Center, which was the place where the embezzlement and the malfeasance took place. And Asilomar Conference Center is a 105-acre site on the ocean side of Pacific Grove. Gorgeous. Uh, it's got uh, uh, beautiful Julia Morgan-designed buildings. Very successful conference center. And in 1992, which is three years before that conviction, I got a phone call. And that this episode is actually in my novel, Deadlines. I got a phone call from an older lady, a citizen, who had lived on the uh, in, inland side of uh, Asilomar, who told me that her whole life long she'd been walking across to Silomar to uh, stroll by the sea and sometimes taking her dog for a walk out there. And then one day she started walking across and a security guard stopped her and asked her if she was a guest. And when she said she was not, he told her she would had to leave the grounds. And she called me up and she actually got bounced around the phone tree at the Chronicle because none of the regular reporters in Metro thought that this were, you know, rose to the level of an actionable story. You know? But she called me up and I was the outdoors writer and she said, that's not right. This is state park land. How can they tell a citizen of the California that they can't cross state park land? And I thought, that's a good question. Let's have a look. So I looked into it and I found out all kinds of wonderful things about Asilomar, including how successful it was. And then I found out that they were, had 90 to 95% occupancy, more than 1,000 conferences a year, and they were making 10 to $13 million a year and gross, but not a dime was leaving. It was like the Roach Motel. All the money chucked in and none of it could check out. You know? So then I thought, okay, well, where's it going? And uh, the ultimate story was that there was a lot of self-dealing amongst the, the executives there. Uh, there was abuse of Asilomar workers. They were forced to do work on executives' homes. 
there was um, uh, abuse of assets and resources all over the place, and then there was actual tangible embezzlement. Goods were bought on a Solomar uh, credit cards that were kept by individuals. Goods were bought, furniture was bought and shipped to relatives, and money was actually taken. And the guy that took the most money, uh, Skip Perkins, uh, eventually had to serve a term in San Quentin. This is a really fascinating story, and, and I can see how you know it, it inspires and inspired this novel. Now, um, one of the things I think you do really well, you talked about this, was create the feeling of the newsroom. Um, talk about creating the feeling of the newsroom using the language of the newsroom, but in a work of fiction. That must have been kind of odd and dislocating for you, huh? Not really. Um, you know, what, what fiction does... Uh, the, what writing is, actually, is a compression of reality. Uh, and, and that's actually, I think, what makes it possible for a reader to shoot the movie that, of the story in their forebrain. You know, the idea of a page-turner, I think, is that the book disappears because you're so eager to get on to the next image. And there's all kinds of things that feed into that, you know, the pacing of the sentences, the strength of the imagery, the power of the plot. Um, and so when you, as a fiction writer, you recognize that you are trying to create a scene that is going to be gripping to the reader, uh, you're compressing reality. If I was trying to describe a newsroom in a nonfiction way, uh, it would be a lot like the way they describe police work, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, long periods of boredom separated by a few seconds of absolute terror. You know? <laughs> um, and newsrooms can be, you know, day-to-day, uh, uh, -day, they can have their grinding aspects. But what I wanted to do was, in this fiction, show new a newsroom in full uproar at that dynamic moment when a investigative story is coming to a head. And all the parties, all these flawed individuals on a noble mission are coming together and trying to get the story out the next day. And because I was describing the newsroom at that climax point, at the climax scenario in fiction, um, it wasn't difficult. Uh, it was just a matter of, uh, it was a matter of leaving things out. <laughs> uh, but I hoped, what I wanted to do was share that with readers so they can see the importance of newsrooms. Because no matter what happens to media in the United States, whether we do in fact move rapidly away from print into more into digital presentations, the thing that really must survive is the discipline of a traditional newsroom with all the cross-checking and uh, emphasis on objectivity that uh, I think characterizes news at its best. Talk about um, that environment. Um, it, it Give us an idea of how you created your characters, your, your three main characters, to bring across the importance of this kind of cross-checking. Because that's, I think, there's a couple of mysteries in, that you address in this book. There's the, there's the, the plot-driven mystery about the, you know, the land graft and the real estate shenanigans, which is, very, which is compelling and page-turning. But there's another mystery right behind, roaring right behind it, which is what the hell is going to happen to our newspapers? Yeah. Um, so the three characters are um, the main the main protagonists. We also have bad guys, of course. You can't have a murder mystery without bad guys. Mm -hmm. But uh, the three main protagonists are first Sebastian Palmer, the guy that I read about, who's a young man. He's a graduate from Medill, which is leading journalism school in the country, one of them. 
And uh, he's uh, been snookered, more or less, into taking an internship at a newspaper. What he really wants to do is go into digital news. But he's got the true newsman's instincts. He wants to tell a story. He's intrigued by finding out what's behind the obvious. And uh, he's relatively fearless. And uh, naturally, he gets in over his head. Um, and I think in any journalist, because it's not a really handsomely paid profession, most people are motivated, especially when they start, by impulses like that. Now, my other reporter is a bit more jaded. He's Cole McKay. He's had kind of a tragic life, and you don't really find out how tragic until you've moved a considerable distance through the book. He's a heavy drinker. He's cynical, and he used to be a reporter, and now at his paper, which has uh, been faltering a bit, he himself has just uh, made his living by writing easy columns that appeal to the liberal sensibilities of San Francisco. So he has to be shocked awake by a number of happenings that, that bring him back to his roots. And, uh, and then the third main uh, character is uh, Elie Jatoba, who's a half-Brazilian woman who's a climbing instructor and, uh, and a young lesbian that, that Sebastian Palmer meets when he first comes to San Francisco. And she wants to be a cop. So all three of these people have got that investigative impulse. And um, what happens in the, when they combine in the newsroom is it takes um, uh, the challenge of the things that they are discovering and the threat to each other to bring them together and galvanize them to uh, solve the, the, the crime and bring things to resolution. One of the things that I think is interesting about this book, especially um, as a mystery, is the is the um, the characters of the way reporters investigate as a as opposed to what we're normally uh, used to. I mean, reporters, as you say, the main thing they can ask is is a question, and you know they don't have you know there's the the power there's the um, they have no weapons, they have no legal power, but they have also this incredible power of bad publicity that they can <laughs> bring down about some people, which is in many ways far worse than anything the legal system can, can bring down. Yeah, that's an interesting point to bring up, Rick. Um, you know, if you look back into the history of, of uh, justice in America and even uh, perhaps even throughout the world, throughout history, the power of shaming and public exposure uh, and shunning has these these powers have actually been used to create justice um, over and over again in communities of any size, and you're right. Exposure is what the the media can do, and it's the reason why people feel like they must answer questions. A journalist has got no more power than an ordinary American citizen, but when it comes right down to it, the ordinary American citizen, especially when ordinary American citizens organize and form an interest group of any sort. Um, they can do FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests. They can accost politicians. They can demand accountability, and that's, that's what reporters do. Um, there's three things that you learn as a reporter that uh, all of us would be well advised to learn as citizens. The first is to do research. You know, there, there's a lot of really good material hiding in plain sight. Uh, one of the lines in... Um, uh, Deadlines talks about the two famous reporters of the 20th century, I.F. Stone and Jack Anderson. And both of those guys got a lot of their power by just reading all the documents, understanding what they were reading and, and picking out the cherries, and making some cherry cobbler for their readers. Uh, the other is charm. 
uh, you can get a lot of people to give things up by charming them and talking to them, getting them to open up. Sometimes uh, disgruntled employees are disgruntled for a damn good reason. And uh, if, you, uh, if you earn their trust, they'll tell you why. They'll tell you what. They'll tell you how. They'll tell you who. That's a mystery solved. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and then, then finally, confrontation. At a certain point, when the ground is really prepared, every once in a while, as a reporter, you've got to bust somebody's chops. And um, it doesn't always work. But when it does work, it's beautiful, man. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about this issue that that uh, comes up, came up in the Asilomar case, and, and comes up in this novel. But you know, the the private ownership of public land um, here in California, we have the arguably much of the most beautiful coastland in the world, and certainly in America. And it has a, a troubled history, and it has, I think, an even more troubling future. Yeah, well, uh, things are tough all over. And uh, as, as um, uh, the saying goes uh, from uh, David Brower of the Sierra Club, famous guy, famous president for a lot of years, you know, all, all, all en- environmental uh, victories are temporary and all environmental losses are permanent. Uh, and... In California, we're very fortunate that we have had such epic battles in the past, both to preserve open space and green sward and coastline protections. I mean, things like the Coastal Commission and the Coastal Conservancy um, are, are, are just incredible achievements by those who have gone before. But for those to be sustained, eternal vigilance, once again, is the price. Um, the, the trouble we're in right now is that uh, our budgets are so porous, and the need to, to, to patch our budgets for very essential things like education and transportation uh, that our officials and our politicians are looking around for money that they can find by any means. And when you look at the public resources, there's a huge temptation there. And the question is, um, you know, is, is there a way that some of this can be done and if it can be done, you know, what is the spectrum from it being done well to it being done poorly, and, and, and what are the procedures? Um, I believe that some, of, as, as uh, in the case of state parks, we've got some state parks that generate revenue for the entire system. After my series ran on Asilomar and the legislature canceled the contract for cause, took it out of the hands of the private association and put it back into uh, a concessionaire, and, and, and with state park oversight, it began generating a million dollars a year for the department. You know, Hearst Castle, Old Town, San Diego are generating revenue. So some of the public lands can be used to generate revenue that will take care of other public lands, including wilderness. But generating revenue is only half the battle, half the picture. At the same time, you've got to make sure which pocket that revenue is going into. <laughs> Now, as speaking of, of the wrong pockets, you, you create some really interesting uh, antagonists in, in your novel. You, you clearly are not these people. Talk about um, creating the characters and maybe some of the people you have met who helped you sculpt these unscrupulous, uh, we'll call them characters for okay. the time Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, they are characters. You know, I mean, it's like the, the, probably the worst thing you could do as a, as a fiction writer is to base a real uh, a, a fictional villain upon a, a real person. I think that's actionable. Mm, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you ever made any money off of your novel, uh, you could watch it all melt away <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like like a snowflake on a on a griddle. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Um, so, yeah, you, when you are creating villains, you really literally have to create them. Where do they come from? Um, I think the best villains are um, uh, manipulators, like Iago and, uh, and Othello. Uh, it, it's pretty easy. There's one thing I deplore in modern fiction writing is there's kind of a race to the bottom in terms of, of creating villains that are really grotesque. Uh, and, and monstrous. And I think there's a place for that, but I think that place has been occupied by Hannibal Lecter for some time now. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't, I'm not interested in playing beat this, you know, mm-hmm. try to make a, a, something more monstrous than Hannibal Lecter, particularly as portrayed by Anthony Hopkins. Mm. Instead, I thought uh, what I'll create is uh, a ma- manipulative villains who set people against each other and work behind the scenes. And of course, that gives you a mystery that must be more entangled because you have to find the bad guy. You know, where's where's Wicked Waldo? Mm-hmm. Is the name <laughs> of the game. Um, but then the other thing that I think we need that, that makes a villain interesting is to make the villain a bit of a blank slate, so that the uh, reader has a chance to maybe uh, pour some of their own imagination in, into who this guy or gal is and, and why they do what they do. And maybe some of their own dark desires uh, slip in there without being too, too fully identified. And, and so that I think that involves us on, on both the, the light and the dark side of the plot. Um, my favorite villain of all time, and people always laugh when I tell them this, is the penguin in Wallace and Gromit's The Wrong Trousers. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is, is because the penguin is manipulative and he achieves his evil, but he's still a blank slate. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to imagine what's going on inside of the penguin. And I think that that's, that's very useful for a story. Could you talk a, a, about um, creating a, a, a plot in in this novel because this novel has a really strong kind of page turning plot the events that you experienced in real life and generally probably do experience in real life as a, as a reporter do not have a strong plot so on one hand here you're a man who spent 20 years writing plotless stories and, and now you've got to turn that same um milieu into a tightly plotted novel mm-hmm um, suspense uh, is an eagerness to see what happens next. The uh, novelist John Gardner called that profluence. It's kind of a big word, but it means like you want the flow to keep happening because you want to get somewhere. Um, so the way that you do that as a fiction writer, I think, is it's kind of simple. It's Perils of Pauline. You, you have to take a sympathetic character and put them at risk. Um, but I think that the key... to plot development is that the plot has to turn on the development of the characters. In other words, the characters have to come to some sorts of inner decisions that makes it possible for for them to resolve the external situation. And that makes the plot and the story both human and humane. And I think that that, the more the reader can identify or at least appreciate what the characters are doing and, and what is happening to them, then the, the greater the impact the plot turns and twists will have on them and, and the more that they'll be concerned about the outcome. And that level of suspense is what you want to invoke. And, of course, no, you can't do that very often in a news story. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, talk about um, the, the, the characters you create, the, the, these 
the newsman, especially you have kind of two varying levels of experience here. You have somebody who's pretty green, and then you have somebody who's gone from green to jaded. It's mm -hmm. the same Which color. Which is another shade of green. <laughs> yeah, another shade of green, right. <laughs> so talk about uh, uh, creating those two characters and, and the interplay between them. As a, as a man who I have got to guess has been on both sides of that equation. Mm -hmm. That's right. In fact, I was so idealistic as a young man that I spent six years in a Catholic seminary studying to be a priest. And That's not idealistic. Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, I was there from 13 through 19. Mm -hmm. it was, uh, kind of my teenage years were spent entirely in this uh, kind of rigorous medieval uh, uh, educational environment. And so I came out of that um, uh, pretty idealistic, but uh, with also a view of how large institutions did their work. Um, <laughs> and, okay. Yeah, uh, and we'll leave that alone for the time being. Um, and then I um, uh, entered news writing. Actually, my, my I finished up my degree at Florida State and got a degree in poetry, which is also pretty idealistic. I mm -hmm. mean, when, when you think about it, it's like, okay, your degree's in poetry, now go make a living. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, 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 I'll not stretch out everything that happened, but eventually... Uh, three years after I, three to four years after I graduated, I was living in Mendocino area, and noticed that there were a lot of environmental stories that actually were not being told very well, and so I set myself to try to write those stories in an accurate and informed and visceral way, and I approached it much the same way as you would approach writing a college term paper. This is my assignment. You know, this is you know when I must get done and so forth, and I also said, okay, uh, in order to force myself to do this and, and really do it, I am going to try to make my living by only on the proceeds of what I make by selling these stories. So it was a rather, you know, thin existence, but I was kind of like a blogger of the 70s, you know, and uh, uh, eventually after doing that for eight years, um, I had accomplished enough that when the Chronicle started the outdoor section, uh, they hired me on to be the main feature writer. Once I was at the paper, I was exposed to the whole panoply of the newsroom. You know, the, the classic hard-nosed, dedicated, hard-driving investigative reporters, you know, the lazy wretches that were exploiting the system from within, the people that were kind of on the take, the double dealers. I mean, it, it, there's everything inside a news organization that is also outside the organization. <laughs> And um, so when I came, when it came time to assemble my two reporters for deadlines, you know, I, I kind of uh, took all of my impressions and separated them into two piles. You know, the pile that was right for Sebastian Palmer and the pile that was right for Cole McKay. There's a, a feeling here uh, of uh, a kind of Irish command of the English language, uh, 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 a speechifying talking. Uh, on, on a mailing list, I'm on on the Fordian list, there's a guy who calls his blog Blather. <laughs> right. Uh, and in fact, uh, Cole McKay's dead lover accuses him of Blather at one point in the book. Um, yes. Uh, you know, they're, they're, the narrative tone of Deadlines is something I'm particularly proud of because my narrator, Cole McKay, is a middle-aged Irishman who was actually born in Ireland. And uh, he clearly still has the print of the Blarney Stone on his lips. And so... Parts of deadlines are a little ornate, but, you know, one of the things that that gave me a chance to do was wallow a bit in the English language in the way that the Irish do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, 
And also, the, so that, you know, when you talked about deadlines being a little bit different from your average murder mystery. Right, right. I think that's one of the reasons why it is a bit different. Is uh-huh. because, and it's a very conscious effect on my part is I love language, and I wanted to play with it. And in order to do that, I had to have a narrator who was playful with language, Andrew it, Cole McKay. It's it's very unusual. as a, When you read this as a mystery, I mean— other than the plot, you might not even think it's a mystery just by virtue of your prose style, which I think is really unique and very entertaining. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, like I said, you know, when you're, I, you, I was noted for writing uh, news stories and features that were, uh, shall we say, a bit on the literary side. But even so, I felt constrained. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, once I jumped over the fence and into fiction writing, you know, there, there's there's a similar like the release of the springs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that sort of effect. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the ramble. It's clear you're having a lot of fun with this novel too. Talk about bringing that sense of fun to the plotting to the characters, uh, which is something you probably could not do in the news. Not not often. I mean, every once in a while I would sneak a pun into a news story, and I was caught about 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, in this case, uh, you know, at the same time that there is a lot of uh, tension and danger in deadlines, uh, there's a steady stream of uh, jokes and kind of funny interactions and scenes that happen. And uh, I had a revelation one evening. I was talking to my wife, and I said, Everything I know about humor, I learned from the gravediggers in Hamlet. And uh, there's this idea, I mean, if you think about it, if there was not the graveyard scene in Hamlet, it would be a very much bleaker play. But because that scene is in there, suddenly you realize what a funny guy Hamlet really is, even though he's in this tragic position. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it hadn't been for the murder of his dad, you know, he'd, he'd probably have run off with the players. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but um, in Deadlines, what I wanted to do was was have another thread, uh, kind of like this bright thread woven through the tapestry uh, of joking and humor and, and wry takes on things. And even when the stakes are pretty high, uh, for instance, when Cole McKay and Elijah Taba go to Vegas mm-hmm. uh, to try to like really get out of the roots of, of, of solving the crime, um, their scenes are actually pretty funny. Uh, you know, there's kind of an I Love Lucy aspect to uh, what they have to do in order to get the information they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, 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 that was one more thing I tried to do. You know who's really good at this, but I think he's, he does it a lot more than I do, is, is Rob Hyacin. Mm-hmm. You know? Carl Hyacin. Carl Hyacin. Mm-hmm. I, I knew his brother Rob, so mm-hmm. I, keep, I mix their names up. Yeah, Carl Hyacin does it. I didn't want to go as far as he, got, he does, mm-hmm. though, because a lot of his books have a, are, I would say, go even go into farce. Mm-hmm. You know? I didn't want to go that far. I still wanted it to have... Um, enough gravitas that people would take the story seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think they will. I've been speaking with Paul McHugh. His new novel is Deadlines. Thank you for joining me, Paul. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.